Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In today's episode of the podcast, Brian Ward of Clemson University's Coastal Research and Education Center in Charleston, South Carolina, joins us for a discussion about maximizing the benefits of cover crops in vegetable and organic systems. Ward also discusses some of the research that he has found on organic watermelon growth and its relation to pollen and bees. Today I want to talk to you today about um, integrating cover crops in commercial organic and conventional vegetable production. Once again, my name is Brian Ward and I am located at Clemson University's Coastal Research and Education Center in Charleston, South Carolina. And basically, Everybody um, has done a lot of research with cover crops and no-till. And when it comes to integrating cover crops into um, a vegetable production system, um, um, we're still kind of new at that. And I've got some ideas. Hopefully, I can share those with you today. And you'll see some, some have some ideas about what you may be able to do with your own farm or, or talk to other growers about. So why do we cover crop? I mean, basically the build soil health is a, a really important factor. Nutrient retention, erosion control, weed reduction. And so being in the Southeast uh, coastal plain, maintaining fertility in sandy soils is extremely difficult. Um, and so therefore we have to blend of existing uh, cultural practices and, and as like I said, we're actually developing new cultural practices. And um, so we use co- cover crops and there is a mixture of plastic culture and also bare ground along with uh, double cropping systems. And we'll talk about that in a little while. So some of the main factors affecting our fertility in our soils um, is, is basically the makeup of the soils themselves, percent sand, the percent loam, um, and the sand particle size itself. Um, You can travel along the coastline here and have more of a powdery type of sand. Um, And then if you go inland on the coastal plain, you'll have a much, much coarser uh, sand. Uh, So it all depends. There's many factors that that, that affects temperature and microbial activity, all kinds of things. Um, so pH of the soils is very important as well, of course, um, and, this, and for, for us, it's uh, CEC of the soils, the cation exchange capacity, the organic matter, soil microbial activity, and the growth stage of the vegetable crop itself all take, all take a role into providing and supplying nutrients um, to your crop and while maintaining um, your cover cropping system. So for us, you have uh, in the upstate, you'll have lots of clay. And we're located down here in the uh, coastal plain. And ours is actually from, basically from the, you go from the beach inland and you start seeing this, uh, this expansion of sand to sand, to loamy sand, et cetera, et cetera. So ours is, so we're over 70% sand in our soils. So if you take the surface area of this clay, take this one little clay particle and stick it inside of this little silt particle, and then you take all these silt particles and put it and place it in this one little sand particle or, or granule. Then you can see that this, the clay particle has a certain amount of surface area. But, it, but if you take all these clay particles and stick it in the silt, you have, a, you have 10 times more surface area in clay than you do in silt. And then if you do that in the sand, it's like a hundred, it's, it's like a thousand times more uh, surface area um, fold again when you go to sand. So clay 
And organic matter tend to have a lot more uh, cation exchange capacity in your soils. And so essentially for us, and the coastal plant is so important uh, to, in, in trying to trying to build organic soil organic matter because of the fact that we are so sandy and any organic matter that, that we are able to generate is quickly and our climate is quickly uh, respired back into the atmosphere. Um, and so what we, we, we try to actually have longer term uh, cover cropping systems that have actually shown to actually prove a little bit better than doing a cover crop and then, and then, and then uh, disking it and then doing another cover crop. So we're trying to work toward no-till drilling of uh, so, so sequential uh, cover cropping scenarios in order to build our soils. And so basically the chaotic exchange capacity is the fundamental soil property used to predict plant nutrient availability and retention in the soil. It is the potential of available nutrient supply, not a direct measurement of available nutrients. Soil CEC typically increases its clay content and organic matter increase because cation exchange occurs on the surfaces of clay minerals, organic matter, and roots. And so in our environment, you'll note that sandy soils rely heavily on the CEC of organic matter for retentions, uh, retention of nutrients in our soils. And so, if, and basically you can see, we don't even, we don't test for nitrogen because it's basically it's, there's no existing nitrogen in the soil, just very little in parts per million. And, but if you note, if you note uh, down here in our organic matter, this is 1.59%. So that is actually one of our medium level fields as far as organic matter. Most of our fields start off in our conventional portion of our farm. Um, we have typically our soils are less than 1% organic matter. Uh, typically ranging around 0.75%. And then some of our heavier um, soils um, started around 3%. And we've actually been able to increase those a little bit more disproportionately uh, over the sandy, the sandy fields. Um, we do have a few fields that have a little bit more uh, loam material in them. Um, and so we've got about 5% organic matter on our most organic fields. And we've increased our soil organic matter by of about 2% in some fields. So, but the cat exchange capacity is extremely low, which is correlated directly to the organic matter we have here, because there's basically no clay, except for our pan layer that we have approximately 18 inches down. So concept and terms, and typically, typically in the past, you know, green manure crops are grown mainly to improve the nutrition as a subsequent uh, main crop and main contain legumes that can uh, add nitrogen to the cropping system. A catch crop is a cover crop that is grown to catch available nitrogen in soil. So if you have a crop of say, let's just use watermelon because I'm gonna talk about watermelon later. If you take watermelon and you grow a crop of watermelon and after the watermelon is done, if you plant a crop of say uh, cereal rye behind that watermelon, what happens is any nitrogen that's contained in that soil profile that was not directly utilized by the by the watermelon plant itself will be absorbed into the cereal rye and be made available to the crop that you may plant uh, after that cover crop. So that's just a simple catch and banking type system. Um, so preemptive competition is basically the uptake of soil nitrate by cover crops, like in the previous scenario, so that they won't be lost uh, through leaching or volatilization. And so, and be somewhat available to the subsequent crop and also to the soil microbes. So there's a, there's a big thing we'll talk about just in a little bit about carbon and nitrogen and the supply of nitrogen. 
And so in the past, green manure crops basically uh, should were considered to be effective if they were winter killed or could be grazed or could be grazed or killed early in the spring to prevent a preemptive competition. So your green manure crop crop could be rapidly mineralized. So that was kind of sort of like a, an early uh, thought process. And now we realize that by doing that, we actually lose nitrogen and lose carbon uh, by tillage, um, especially like major tillage. And so basically what we're trying to do is actually incorporate our cover crops into our active growing season. High residue cover crops are some of the ones that we can print, we can kill without actually destroying or incorporating the, the carbon into the soil. And so there's a big, there's a big thing if you're trying to match uh, supply and demand, uh, synchrony between your, the match of your, your nitrogen supply from your cover crop and the timing that the crop, the subsequent crop is gonna need that nitrogen um, is very, very, very tricky. And then that's where you actually also have to be careful about uh, if you're doing a, a bare ground situation about side dressing and so on and so forth. Uh, so plowing cover crops into the soil increases soil organic matter to an extent so tillage loosens uh, and controls weeds and smooths the field, but it also uh, burns up the soil organic matter, uh, CO2 respiration in the soil, and it also speeds up nitrogen mineralization, but it also uh, speeds up denitrification. So, uh, so that nitrogen can actually volatilize as a gas into the atmosphere under certain conditions. Um, and also, so you can actually lose nitrogen uh, through the soil profile and or into as a gaseous a gas form, along with your uh, carbon dioxide in the gas form. So, um, so cover crops make uh, no-till more successful. And so we're also trying to learn how to make uh, no-till vegetables more possible. And so no-till with cover crops increases soil carbon and plastic culture versus bare ground. So we're increasing, we're incorporating it, plastic culture and bare ground. Some of the crops we've used for cover crops and bare ground scenarios, you'll see at the end, are the cover crops are doing too good of a job actually in controlling weeds. So our, our selections for uh, zone eight plus um, and along the, along the coast, it's, it's tropical directly, directly along the immediate coast. Um, so for winter, winter cover crops, we look at hairy vetch, clovers, uh, cereal rise, and oat. And for summer cover crops, we look at cowpeas, sun hemp, millet, uh, sunflowers even, some forest, forest turnips are more like in a fall, and forest radish is more of a fall or spring cover, depends on where, whether you can fit those in. And they're, they're really good, the, the, the turnip uh, crops, the forage radishes as well. Um, for us, I basically have focused my attention on primarily two crops of the Sudan uh, sorghum or, or Sudex um, was on my grass plant, but then I've kind of gotten away from that now. And actually now I do more uh, sun hemp more than anything and cowpea. And so the USDA uh, about 15 years ago um, uh, released improved lines of some Sea Island cowpeas, uh, 1136, 1137, 1138. And I do have the mineralization uh, rate of the, of the nitrogen uh, residues as they've been incorporated um, into the soil. And also have the biological profiles of what those cover crops, while incorporated into soils, what different groups of 
microorganisms, they actually stimulate more so to grow. So I do have some data on that that I like. I can share at another time. So, and the cowpeas, so those are really good. And the sun hemp basically is my go-to now for doing no-till drill. Um, and instead of using like the 30 pounds per acre that is suggested, uh, you, when you do 30 pounds to the acre, you get a lot of much larger stalks. And so, and they're very woody and they take a lot of time to break down, but more importantly, they're hard, they're hard to actually crimp and actually they're, they're harder to actually create a, a, a way of getting a transplant or direct seeded crop into that soil with, uh, with such huge, uh, even with, uh, organic matter handlers on your, on your, your monosome type of air seeders with the material managers on them. It's even harder with that. So we do 60 pounds to the acre and 60 pounds to the acre, you only get basically sizes of sun hemp stalks that are about the size of a pencil. And that allows for them to be laid down a lot more cleaner and also allow for a small little spot for a transplant or a seed to emerge from that or be transplanted through that, that debris um, and into the soil. And so for winter crops, we've used Austrian winter peas in the past, but I like to focus on primarily one, one variety. And this year we actually tried something new and because of supply um, issues. In the past, I've gone to Regal, Regal Graze Ladina Clover, and that clover was designed to be grazed by cattle. And so basically it takes, a, it takes a beating. If it has ample water, it'll actually perennialize to some degree and actually live year round, which makes a great year round type of cover crop system and a semi-permanent double crop uh, vegetable crop system. So basically we plant the clover and we just, we only till the section that's gonna be used for the, the plastic culture. So, and this year we went to a, a Seminole Ladina clover. And actually, it, it appears to be actually a, pro providing a lot more biomass in the soil and a much a little bit a little bit uh, better cover. And both of these systems work really well, um, and, and and especially in plastic culture systems. All right, so on onward and upward, some more things that we started we we acquired and we learned. So we we bought one of these Rodell crimpers, and you fill it with water, and it uh, adds a bunch of weight to it. And um, it crimps the crop really well. Um, it's a little, little hard to maneuver sometimes, but um, the idea is just uh, point it in the direction you want it to go and, and, and roll. And uh, so it, it, works, it works really well. It lays it down really well. And there are certain optimal stages of the cover crop that you have to hit when you go to use this or the plant will jump back and regrow. And you don't want that if you're going with a no-till drill. So here's a, this is sun hemp. And so this is one of my go-to um, crops and you can see how well of a mat it, it creates versus the um, winter rye. Now winter rye can do the same thing. Cereal rye can do the same thing, but I like this for a fall crop of broccoli. It works extremely well for a fall crop of broccoli. Any weeds that may come up through this are easily, easily early on, easily destroyed um, in a, a stale seed bed situation with one of the organic um, herbicides, acid type herbicides, uh, non-selective and or uh, commercial um, uh, herbicide uh, knockdown in a conventional uh, situation. 
So now I'll talk about some, uh, my, some of my earliest work with cover crops that has to deal with these, these cowpeas that we talked about earlier. And, um, and, you'll, and the reason why I got out of cowpeas is not, not that I, don't, I haven't I've gotten out of completely. I still use them, but I've found that sun hemp is a, provides a much longer, has a longer longevity to its above ground biomass um, for a, crop, a fall crop because you're planting your fall crop primarily in, in August, late August here, which is one of the hardest, hottest summers of our year. Sun hemp seems to break down a lot slower than, than does the vines and the foliar matter of, the, uh, of these cover crop lines, of these pea lines, these cow peas. So this is 1136. This is 1136. So this is, so one plant covers uh, 100 square feet. So a 10 by 10 foot section, one, one, one seed can, can completely cover. And these are soft seeded, so these were improved to be soft seeded, so they don't regrow um, uh, and pop up in your vegetable crop uh, two years down the road. And they also have been selected for nematode resistance. Okay, so nematode resistance, and also I also have that information on how well they perform under differing uh, moisture levels in, in the soil. So one of these varieties, I think it's 1136, actually can withstand a little bit more moisture in the soil um, than the other two. So this is 1137. These are some early trials we did. This is 1138. And once again, they all look basically the same, uh, same characteristics, but they all act a little bit different in soil. And depending on your soil type and your desires, you what you need in your field, you can pick one or two or a combination of three or however you want to you know, look at your field and what you need. Um, so we wanted to look at uh, uh, basically how, and this is some of the data I have if you request it, is how mowing this cover crop and, and leaving it on the surface versus incorporating it into the soil, what that looks like as far as um, providing uh, nutrients to the soil and carbon to the soil. Uh, so basically this is, a, this is, this is uh, our cover crop planted on uh, those cowpeas, all three different cowpeas planted on a uh, raised bed, okay? And, um, this is a flail mower just to basically mulch and try to, try to get the cowpea completely mulched up and so it would break down really fast. Um, or, or just stay on the surface as a really good, actually kind of woven mat. And so this is the underside of the flail mower. So this is basically a footprint um, and a pulverized material. And so it's about three inches thick of a matting material. And this is when we come back and swept the alleys. And so we did a bare ground check. We did incorporated material and then we did, we did material just laying on top. And then we also did uh, plastic culture incorporation. And so actually this concept right here with uh, plastic, plastic culture incorporation lends itself well now looking back on this method to a, a, a method of um, disease control, insect control, weed control and soils and vegetable protection systems called anaerobic soil disinfestation. So ASD technology, uh, I guess it was basically kind of like uh, perfected in uh, California and then Florida and now uh, Clemson, we're doing a lot of work with that. And basically what it, what it does is you take material like this, a carbon source, incorporate it into the soil profile, put plastic over it, uh, flood the bed, make the bed saturated with, with water. And as the microbes in that soil uh, 
utilize that carbon, uh, they basically produce CO2 and other gases and eventually go anaerobic. And then there's a series of anaerobic bacteria that'll go in and start producing alcohols and other, other volatiles. And that kind of sterilizes the soil bed. So this is a technique, there's, there's a bunch of different techniques you can utilize when you're looking at cover crops and implementation into different aspects of vegetable production and different times of that production. So moving forward, so learning some lessons from the strawberry industry. So in our, in our area, a lot of the UPIC strawberry operations and regular commercial of uh, strawberry operations, like some of our biggest operations are typically our average size is between three and five acres um, of strawberries um, uh, along the coastal plain. And so we actually plant Italian winter rye in the alleys between the strawberry plants uh, so that when rain comes, it doesn't splash disease and sand particles up on top of the developing berries and cause uh, the berries to become disease with the spores. And so we use, we, and that was a technique we used and we would mow the alleys and so on. Um, and it was, it proved to be really effective. And I didn't think till later that we could actually start using that as an organic method to keep the field green. And so that's essentially what we're trying to do is basically keep the field green. Uh, anywhere there's bare ground, if we keep it green, we're, we're, we're fixing carbon, uh, we're tying up nitrogen and we're, we're trying to uh, just basically just uh, continual uh, increasing of the soil carbon. And that's, we have to do that in, in order to try to maintain a good productive vegetable system uh, where we're at. Um, uh, soil is a little bit different on the islands, uh, a little bit darker, a little bit richer, um, but we're like just on the other side of this tree line back here in the distance, as you can see. Actually, you can see uh, our, this is our organic part of the farm. You can actually see a flame, a flame throwing unit back here. It's a four row unit with an orchard flamer uh, modified on the side that we're actually burning some ditches um, in the off season uh, here. But beyond this tree line is the intercoastal waterway. And beyond that is uh, John's Island, which is one of our coastal islands right here in uh, Charleston. So this is basically another year of looking at, this is broccoli, okay? And this is plastic culture, uh, pre-plant granular, um, organic fertilizer was placed in this field. And then we planted the, the winter rye, Italian. Uh, and then basically, so, th and this is important because sand does and, and, and disease can uh, jump from the, from the soil to up to the tops of when the, during, from button head formation on. And so this actually eliminates the splashing and also eliminates any kind of sand in your, your broccoli heads. And that can be the same thing for lettuce or, or, or any other kind of brassica crop in the wintertime. Um, it's basically because that's where Italian winter rye grows is during that time period. Um, and so, and this is just basically, this is quality organic produce, uh, just some different lines that during the variety trial we're doing um, that, were, that came out of that type of plastic culture system. So now I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about what we've actually done with watermelon and watermelon um, is in South Carolina, I mean, well, technically nationwide, there's not a lot of organic watermelon. I mean, that, that, that's changing every day. But in South Carolina, there was a point where we had actually, we had zero acres of organic watermelon and we still have very little organic watermelon. Uh, Florida is right there with us. They have more, Georgia has more. And so we were, I wanted to try to try to bring organic watermelon to our state because we can grow it. Our growers are willing to grow it. Um, and we have a, a fair amount of organic growers that want to grow it. 
And so this is some just some some numbers. Back in like 2016, there was 113,000 acres um, of watermelon, uh, 40 million pounds, and 0.01% of that, or 12 acres, were organic production at one point. And that basically was primarily for seed to be sold in catalogs and with, with some minis in there mixed in in California. So I want us to explore the feasibility of certified organic watermelon production. And so in order to do that, according to my NOP and my farm plan, I basically had to modify the habitat in which we typically grow watermelons. Um, and that basically and that basically meant me incorporating cover crops. So we set out by modifying watermelon habitat with the inclusion, inclusion of native wildflower species to increase native bees and also uh, clover. And we did this in um, organic and conventional in 2018. And we also, we collected, uh, um, we collected uh, tissue samples from all plots uh, in the conventional versus organic. We still have yet to run those. Um, we were on the verge of running those prior to the pandemic. And now we're almost about ready to go back into our labs, get our lab running again, and we can run those for carotenoids and phenolic acids inside the, the organic versus conventional uh, production and see if there is a difference um, in the two, two, the two systems. One is, you know, of course, chemical-based, one's organic-based, one uses cover crops and pollinating species, and the other one does not. Um, so moving forward, uh, so, and for the justification, so this, this is basically, this is a justification right here. So basically for conventional in the, the first weeks of August, and so, and the reason why we, we plant organic watermelon a little bit late, and that's counterintuitive because you would think, well, if you plant it late, you're going to be running right into where everybody else is leaving their fields vacant for, for disease, watermelon fields. A lot of the growers will leave their fields and it's, it's a source, it's a vector for disease. Sometimes that work on a research farm, it, 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 it doesn't really work out for us too well unless they've incorporated most of, most of the, the field, the research fields around us. One, one out of four years, we, we got pretty bad with foliar disease, but that was about it. Um, and so here we have conventional watermelon in the first three weeks of August at $10 a pound. And this is actually basically after the surge in that one year. Um, uh, and I think typically typical prices are between 16, 18 cents a pound, somewhere around there. Uh, and so for organic watermelon that year at the distribution point, it was actually 48 cents a pound. And so that was over four times what a, a conventional grower was, was making. And so that actually kind of, that justified the, the additional cost, labor and so on and so forth, and would still come out ahead um, and uh, overall net for, for, for that crop. And so for us, so, so we, we, we did, uh, for typical watermelon, it all depends on your spacing and your density plants per acre and the variety and all. But for us, we used um, uh, eight foot spacing between beds, three foot within row spacing. We used uh, um, 80 units of nitrogen, uh, uh, organic nitrogen pre-plant, which is a blended product from uh, NatureSafe, uh, 10 to eight, 10% um, nitrogen. And so we used something like that that shank that we saw earlier, they were planting cabbage into that uh, cover crop. Um, and so this, the shank is, 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 a, is basically, it's a fertilize, fertilizer gas uh, drip tape shank um, that can actually do all in one pass. And so, it, and we, we 
modified it a little bit. So it basically kind of opens up a crevasse and then closes back. And so basically, so we, we subsoil a prepant fertilizer into that crevasse. And then we also put a drip tape in there. And so, and then, so that was our 80 units and we drip, uh, drip fertigated two weeks post crown set. So as soon as we got our, our first crown set, um, two weeks, we started our two pounds per acre per week of sodium nitrate and four gallons per week of uh, nature safe uh, 241. Or excuse me, Nature's Gym 241. It's a liquid fish uh, product. And in the fall prior to that, we actually planted regal adino graze, regal graze lindana clover. And instead of the 12 pounds per acre, we used 25 pounds per acre to, which not everybody can do, but we did it in excess because uh, that one one of the field that we planted in that year had a lot of wetting areas, so we wanted to make sure that we we try to avoid that. And then we used a wildflower mix and we screened uh, 22 different lines of wildflowers and um, our entomology, we had an entomology student and that student uh, categorized what bees visited the wildflowers and the watermelon crop um, at the same time. So they were, they would go to both. And so basically the, the idea behind that was is to provide for uh, pollination services uh, for the crop um, and that was another takeoff of uh, using native bees versus uh, honeybees. And we'll, we'll look at that just in a little bit. All right, so we also tested uh, grafted versus non-grafted uh, watermelon. And we also used uh, 12 different lines of watermelon, ranging in earliness um, and sweetness and packing and uh, a, a, good, a good representation of the market. These are our four uh, wildflower species that we use, uh, Coreopsis, Gilgaria, Cosmos, and Xenias. Um, and those were the ones where honeybees and, and uh, all the other bee species would visit that and also the watermelon uh, plants. And so this, this, there's a lot to speak about in this, this slide. Um, so we planted, this is all that regal graze ladina clover. Um, and we planted, this whole field was planted to this, this clover. And you can see actually we have a shank right here and the clover has grown back over that shank for the most part and it's still creeping its way. And before these plant, these watermelon plants right here, um, so this, like, this is like one plot. So before this plot, um, um, and each, each row is a rep, but each before, before by, by the time this, these watermelons vines crept down into the alleys, um, and you can see it's moist on the side right here, that's where the drip tape was placed more so on that side, and you can see it's on more so on this side. So where it was wet first, the actually clover actually did creep all the way back to the edge, providing uh, a place for the vines to adhere to and pull the watermelon crop apart from that. This actually worked, when I said earlier, too good, the cover crop worked too well. So um, without having anything to keep the clover from coming back, we actually, you can see there's like baby transplants down here. This is our third time planting those and opening these holes back up. So we went to burning uh, a hole of clover to allow time for the watermelon crop to actually emerge and start competing but the clover actually is still outcompeted to watermelon in these scenarios. So we've got to go back and actually decide how we're going to fix that, how we're going to actually address the competition factor of that, that clover while still maintaining a weed-free environment between the rows because we spend so much time turning vines um, and also 
uh, controlling weeds to cultivation and tillage, this basically eventually operate, opens up the entire door for just a green field, you know? And uh, we also have wildflowers planted along these borders, okay? And so we, we never had to use insecticides um, and we just basically used, um, uh, we used uh, copper and we also used sulfur products. Um, and primarily the, the environment itself kind of sort of took care of itself as far as pest disease and the grafting, uh, of course, proved to be um, better, better yielding, uh, although grafting was typically around 10 days to two weeks later than the, non, the ungrafted watermelon. Grafting did, did uh, prove to be um, higher yielding, um, uh, sweeter, uh, pretty much across the board almost on all varieties. Okay, so this is what, this is just an aerial view of the field. And then this is basically, uh, this is a picture of the field. And on this is the end of the field where you have nut sedge and other grasses popping up. But for the most part, the field is pretty clean where the beds were, okay? And typically you would not be able to see that if the clover was not there. It would, the whole field would be completely grassy looking like this. So you can see it actually works extremely well. And then the wildflowers provide for plenty of pollinization services, as well as act as a banker crop for uh, parasitoids like uh, lady beetle larvae and wasps and things of that nature. And so this is another picture um, of the following year. Like I said, once again, on the end, you have the grasses where we've destroyed the clover, okay? And allowed the grasses allowed to come back. We did a study in this field prior to this um, for three years, and we found that the inclusion of this, this method can reduce um, uh, uh, yellow nut sedge uh, numbers by 70% after two years of uh, rotation and the cover crop. So essentially where we had clover in these alleys before, um, we would have uh, clover this year, and we would take this, this, and we would plant two crops in this, in this bed, um, and we would plant a crop in this bed and then harvest it and then go back and plant another crop in that bed and to, for the whole year. And then the following season where you see plastic now is where you would see clover. And then where you see alley now is where you would see plastic the following year. That's where we derived at the two-year rotation for eliminating the uh, yellow nut sedge. And this is just a picture of, and so, um, there was a little bit more soil disturbance in these flower beds because there's, there's two rows really close together. So we ran two shanks. And by doing that, we disturbed the soil a little bit more than we did in um, where, the, uh, where the watermelons were planted out here. And so you can see, you can see all these grassy species that have actually kind of grown, grown up and really competed with uh, these flowers. But we got the flowers in early enough where they were able to ultimately outcompete. So, so this is just, these are, uh, I, I, it was kind of hard to determine which graph he put on here, but this is just pollinator services. So, um, so these, these are the different, um, uh, different species of bees. And so you have your apis species, which are your honeybees, your small helictids by, by far were like the total number. And then you have your bomba species. And one of the reasons why, so we see when it's really humid and it's really dewy and on the ground, a lot of our, 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 we have about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 highs on the station. Um, uh, but when, when it's cool outside or if it's wet outside, the, the, the honeybees don't typically like to come out too much. Um, they, I mean, only when I deal uh, conditions, I mean, but the bumblebees were the really the, 
the, as far as the number of, of pollinization visits and services, basically the, the, the bumblebees down here were actually doing a lot of the heavier lifting in environmental conditions when the environmental conditions were not conducive for honeybees. So if it was, if it, I've seen honeybees out there uh, basically hiding uh, in the field uh, inside of flowers still working when it was like thunderstorming on them. And they, they just continual, continually work, just keep on working. So that was basically, you saw a, a very large increase in, um, and, and what the one, the one interesting thing is though, that you see is that uh, the grafted um, material, uh, the ungrafted material, the helictids like, and uh, the everything like the ungrafted material, except for the bumblebees. The bumblebees actually like the grafted material under over the ungrafted material, um, which was pretty pretty uh, interesting. And some had said maybe it's uh, has something to do with uh, the color difference that we can't see that bees may be able to see that happens uh, during that grafting. Uh, maybe um, uh, aromas in the air. Just don't know yet. That's another entomology program uh, project. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with Montag Dealer. Visit MontagMFG.com or call Montag at 712-517-2775. Now, let's get back to the conversation. And so, and the reason why we need pollinization services in watermelon and why the, the wildflowers and maintaining wildflowers is easier than maintaining bees and the danger of hurting honeybees um, from other from other fields or whatever um, is the this is one sign of inadequate pollinization. It happens with, uh, there's other 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 symptoms, but this is a virtually healthy uh, watermelon here. You do see a little bit of cracking right here, and that's just called hollow heart. But that's actually basically not existent. That could have been just dropping a little crack. Same with this one. When you start when you start seeing these these linear lines like this, then you're starting to get to a little bit more pre hollow heart conditions. And then so pollinization services and organic uh, best production are, is important, but also being able to incorporate those pollinization services within the cover crop system um, is also important. So and I also do grow peanuts um, and other 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 row crops as well. And with that, I just want to thank uh, the uh, USDA NIFA for the grant. And I, like I said, this is just a brief overview of, of what we do and how we're doing it and how we're still trying to perfect this and also moving forward to uh, these, this, this carbon credit thing and mitigation and uh, green and uh, climate smart crops. This type of uh, work right here Hopefully, a lot of you will actually be able to utilize. Hopefully, a lot of you will be able to modify and maybe take some 
uh, lesson here and just think outside of the box and see how you can modify your habitat, maybe get credits uh, down the road um, when those become uh, readily available. But I just wanna say thank you and allow me for, uh, for me to speak today. And with that, I can take questions um, or proceed from there. Great. Well, thank you, Brian. That was quite a lot of information. <laughs> so um, I was taking some notes as we were going, and I have a couple of questions for you. And I'm sure that some of our uh, some of the attendees will be sending some questions in as well. But um, I guess I have a couple of questions. Uh, you had said earlier, uh, early in your presentation, and I, I think what you said was sometimes cover crops do too good of a job of controlling weeds. Did yeah. I get that right? Yes. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Well, so when we were transplanting um, uh, the watermelon into the cover crop scenario, so the whole field was, uh, was planted in clover, right? So the whole field was planted in clover and it stayed like that for three, four months. And then just where the plastic was is, and where we stripped uh, just till just that area for the plastic culture. And then in the clover between the plastic is where we ran the shank um, for the subsoiling shank for the watermelon. And we also took and burned with a flamer, like little spots in a circle around where we were gonna plant the watermelon transplant. And so when we did that, the watermelon plant grew fine, but the clover, so there was a 12 inch uh, circle around the transplant. And I knew that the clover would, it's so aggressive that the clover would, would creep back into that, that, onto that soil, excuse me, onto that soil yeah. and reestablish itself. Okay. It just happened a lot more, it happened faster than what the watermelon could, could outcompete the clover. And therefore the clover basically swallowed up the transplant. Oh, okay. And that's why, so, so it worked too well. So basically at that point, the watermelon became a functional weed to the clover. Oh, okay. So there's, so there's some, that's one of the parts we have to, we have to work on with trying to get away from plastic culture altogether is how to pick the right specific cover crop for that, let's say for, for watermelon. Okay. In order for the watermelon to compete. And, and, this, and the same, same scenario has to play out for if you're going to be doing bare ground broccoli or bare ground okra in the summertime, um, or whatever scenario, you just have to basically match uh, this living cover crop with the ability of your crop to, to outcompete it. Okay, gotcha. Did that answer your question? I think so, yeah. And then um, I was also really curious to just have you explain how, how and when you, you put that plastic down, like how wide is it? When do you do it? And then um, I guess I'm also curious about uh, the machine where it, with the shank and, and the drip tape. So I'm curious about what the um, sort of the arrange the setup on that machine is. Or is the is the shank running next to? It looked like it was off to the side of where the row was going to be. So um, so the shank um, actually the, so so. It all depends. So the, the, the it all depends on uh, who makes the equipment. So the equipment we have is, is called Kenco, is the name of the, the corporation that manufactures that. There's also uh, Rainbird makes equipment, and there's numerous numerous um, uh, manufacturers of equipment out there that have this plastic laying technology, and they all come in differing widths. 
Okay. So I think the narrowest width that is around 18 inches of plastic surface coverage all the way out to about 32 inches is what we use primarily. Okay. And 32 inches, you can get a double crop on in South Carolina. Well, two rows, let's say two rows, sometimes three rows on that 32 inch width. Okay. In California, they, they, their, their beds are wider than 32 inches. They're probably closer to 48, 50 inches with very little between row spacing. So they have the, the taller, skinnier tires that leave less of a footprint in the field. And so basically they're, they're, whereas we leave almost half the field uh, unplanted with soil surface exposed, that's why I wanted to use cover crops in that area to control weeds. California, and they don't have the pressure that we have, they um, basically utilize about 85% of their field space with only leaving about 15% of soil surface exposed. And so, and if they could get a cover crop in there, they would basically almost have full coverage in the field of green. Okay. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about your clover that you were talking about. Um, so that's a perennial clover? It, that clover, it can be. Um, it can, it can, it can, but in our heat in the summertime yeah. and if it's dry, it'll kill. Okay. But it, uh, if we get any kind of rainfall at all, it can withstand the heat and come back that fall. And the cool thing about it is in an organic system is that mustards and other weeds will, will climb through the, the, the top of it, of the clover. And then you can take a tractor or like a bush hog and go and mow those weeds like wild radishes and things like that. You can actually mow those prior to them setting their seed. And so you can eliminate the weed seed bank by doing that. So everything will grow through the clover and try to flower and you mow it and it destroys it. And so at the end of the day, you're reducing your weed seed bank, but providing nitrogen through the legume action and carbon just through sequestration of carbon into the plant tissue itself. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason we, came to that one particular type of clover and now the new Seminole uh, Ladina clover is that back in, I think it was 2004, we, we did a trial on, I think it was about 30 different types of clover and measured all aspects, uh, ground clovers, I mean, everything. And we basically boiled it down to one, one type that could withstand tractor mowing, weeding, and come right back. So you can pull weeds right next to it. It'll pull the plant up. If it lays back on the soil, it'll go, it'll root right back. So very hardy clover. Okay. And what row spacing were you planting that at? The clover? Yeah. The clover was actually, I didn't talk about that. The clover was actually drilled in with a turf type of cedar called oh. a brilliant. Oh, and so we use a we use a ten foot brilliant that essentially uh, and and it's made for turf and small seed, and so that's how we use it. And I think the the rows on the brilliant are approximately seven inches between row. Okay, gotcha. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the cowpeas, um, just because I wasn't sure if I totally understood. Those are a vining plant, and it seemed like you were saying one plant would cover a hundred square feet. Yes. And how are you planting those? Uh, now, those we can do one of two things with. You can actually either drill at around 75 pounds an acre 
um, with a traditional drill, um, or you can broadcast at about 110 pounds mm -hmm. to the acre. Okay. And then actually just broadcast it on the soil surface and then essentially either using a, uh, some kind of a, 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 like a leveling smoothing tool to incorporate the seed, or you can actually just disc the field after you broadcast the seed and this, the, the seed are very hardy. Oh, okay. And they, but they, but they're resistant to nematodes. So if you have a field that's notorious for nematodes, uh, you can plant the clover. I mean, you can plant the, the, you can plant that, um, the 1136, 1137, 1138, not have it come back, but also uh, have it not be a vector for nematodes. So you won't be increasing the number of nematodes, but you won't be uh, sponsoring the population of nematodes either. Okay. And you had kind of talked about you're not really using the cowpeas that much anymore. I think that that's what I took. That's what I understood. And mainly because you like the Sudan uh sudan um better um oh, the sun the sun hem. I like the sun, sun hem. sorry the yeah. sun hem. right um but so are there certain conditions or situations where the cowpeas would be a better choice um probably for i would say the cowpeas would be a better choice if you're doing asd technology um, which is the anaerobic soil disinfestation technology, mm -hmm. um, or uh, really, I mean, well, but they both have the same characteristics. Sun hemp and they, they both cover the ground really well. Um, it's just for a cover crop, they're, they're equally as well as a cover crop because they both outcompete weeds, retain soil moisture, add carbon, add nitrogen. It's just what happens to it after it's, 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 it's crimped or killed is the issue oh. the sun hemp just makes a, a much better conducer of uh, it's better it's, it's more conducive to um a crimped no-till situation okay whereas the cowpea disintegrates faster i see okay i mean you're left with basically just vines on the soil yeah. surface versus I okay that, i guess the sun hemp actually it creates more like almost like a wall and you're just laying the wall down Okay. Like a little hole in the wall. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so I'm glad you brought up that ASD technology. Can you, that's anaerobic soil. What's the D word? Uh, disinfestation. Disinfestation. And why do you want to sterilize the soils? Well, that's the, so that's a, so in vegetable reduction for years and years and years, uh, we part of a normal practice in conventional ag was to use soil fumigants and actually and we still use soil fumigants um uh well the one the, the the best product that worked was uh, methyl bromide and they started phasing that out a long time ago and i think it's completely phased out or almost completely phased out completely mm -hmm. and so that was a normal process to sterilize your beds and so you're almost like treating your bed like a hydro hydroponic media i see you know, and so, so what we, so in, in that, in that whole, and so you got to look at, look at ASD as not a, one tool, but part of a system. Okay. And so part of that system is sterilizing the bed. And then in an ideal situation is going back and actually putting a drench or uh, some kind of a granular uh, sporulated product that contains a lot of your beneficial organisms. 
and then you repopulate your soil. Okay. Um, so, and so basically all you're doing is taking, taking away part of your, part of your, um, negative aspect, but, 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 but the data shows from, from California and Florida that actually the, the, the pest diseases, the pathogens in the soil, the soil borne pests actually have a higher, uh, reduction rate, um, and recovery than do the beneficial bacteria. So you're not going to kill everything, but the beneficial bacteria come back more hardy and in greater numbers. Oh, and do the pathogenic bacteria and and fungus and so on and so forth. Okay, that's interesting. Um, And then uh, you were kind of talking about you have bare ground plots and you've got the mulched plots and you've got the plastic or the the yeah with the plastic. Um, Yeah. So have you compared yield results between those three systems? And if so, how do they compare? Uh, the, the yields, the, the yields were fairly, fairly similar okay. across, across, across the way the plastic culture, uh, did add earliness. Added what? Earliness. Earliness. So okay. you got early, the, the broccoli crop coming out of that was early. So we're looking at, uh, seven to 10 days on earliness. Okay. Okay. We didn't, and, and actually that was reduced. Earliness was, uh, uh, was the next. Uh, level of earliness was on the bare ground and then the mulched. So actually the mulch, the, the, the organic green manure mulch, uh, the pulverized cowpea that was left on top actually kind of, kind of acted as a, uh, as a insulating blanket. So the soil temperatures didn't oscillate as much as they did in the um, plastic, but they didn't stay as warm as they did in the plastic or the bare ground. And I think that's just direct sunlight contact with the soil surface and with the plastic surface, which basically can conducted that energy downward. Yeah. So earliness was affected. Okay. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily in a positive way, right? But yields overall uh, were as good. Um, they were both the 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 bare ground proved to be uh, the the worst yields, and then and then the plastic culture. And then the bare ground green manure cover on top, those were about similar. So you're getting about the same effect, you know, from both, from either. So ideally, uh, that same method would be where we want, would want to go to modify a no-till situation. And there's also, there's, there's sugar esters and some other polymers, organic polymers that you can add to that and actually create like a binding agent to bind the carbon and the cellulose together and act as a more, have a longer longevity to that mat, that organic mat that's resting on the soil surface to prevent weeds. And so that's some stuff that I want to get into and look at further down the road as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. And the the bare ground system must've had more weed pressure. Oh, absolutely. So that that was the, that was the, 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 the labor so that was, yeah, so that's where you didn't have labor in the other two for pulling weeds or dealing with weeds. And in the bare ground situation, it was all most of your, I mean, that's where, that's where you break, that's where the magic number is, is in that labor, uh-huh. that labor cost of weeding. Everything else is mitigatable. You can mitigate almost everything except okay. for weed pressure. Weed pressure is so horrible in organics. Uh-huh. 
you know, and we have a lead scientist at our station that is a, a good portion of uh, their work is devoted to ASD technology and, and weed scientists, weed science and sustainable systems. And so I work closely with this person. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned yellow nutsedge. Is that the primary weed that you guys are battling there or are there others as well? Uh, there, there, there are numerous, but uh, that is one of them. Uh, one of the main summer weeds, purslane is another weed. Uh, of course, uh, um, our, our pigweed is really bad. Um, and of course, all of our grasses are really bad. But the clover in a summer situation, so we plant the clover in October and it grows until March. And then we cut a small strip for the placement of fertilizer and, and drip and then and put the plastic down. The clover gro grows back to the plastic. The watermelon binds out and spreads a lot faster produces more, spreads a lot faster. Uh, and also a lot of times um, in organics, organic watermelon, the, the vine, you'll get some vine decline and you'll get, um, you won't have a really good canopy. And the watermelons in those scenarios that are not covered well, typically get sunburned and become non-marketable. Oh. And so by sitting in an 18 inch layer, uh, so 18 inches, uh, so the watermelons actually kind of hide down and are covered uh, from, they actually rest on top of clover and they are hidden by clover. Yeah. And so, and, 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 and the vines are as well. And so I've never seen in my life, uh, ever in my life, the, the population of, of, of beneficials and, and a, just a perfect balance. I mean, absolute perfect balance in a whole system approach. You know, it's, it works out really well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then just one final question. You had talked about grafted versus ungrafted. Um, can you tell me what are the, uh, what are the watermelon plants being grafted to? Okay. So that's another part, big part of the research we do at our station is um, watermelon research. Okay. and grafting technology and um so early on uh uh interspecific hybrid squash interspecific hybrid squash were the varieties that were typically used and that was primarily used for fusarium resistance uh resistant to soil-borne fusarium uh, uh fungus okay and that's the fusarium oxysporum and so our pathologist working with our breeders uh, and have come together and they, they've, they've done wild watermelon rootstocks. Uh, they've done Laginaria, which is bottle gourd. So we have interspecific squash hybrid. We have uh, bottle gourd type hybrids. We have wild watermelon hybrids. And the wild watermelon hybrids or the wild watermelons varieties um, are the ones that we're working with now um, heavily. Um, we've actually eliminated the other ones because the the rootstocks now of the wild watermelon has uh, resistance to nematodes and fusarium. Oh. Okay, and so so that's the so that's what we graft too, and we graft uh, either seedless or seeded uh, watermelon on top of that. And the reason why we do that is because for soil-borne disease. Okay, so about ninety percent of the world's watermelons are grafted, except yeah. for in the United States where labor is expensive. And so, um, so we've, we've developed robots 
to do that. And so we have robots to actually do the grafting or we also have hand grafting still in the United States. Oh. Um, uh, they're a little bit more expensive, but they don't, you don't have to worry about the disease so much. Um, and so, um, I don't know if did I answer your question or am yes. I? Yes. No, you, you answered the question. That's very interesting. I, uh, I've learned a huge amount from this short presentation. So thank uh, you. It's, 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 I, I wanted to be, like I said, if I were, if I were to flip through slides, the entire, I mean, slip to, uh, flip to data the entire time, I can get that data to you. But right now I want to just present the concept. Sure. Yeah. Um, and like, um, so ASD relies heavily on carbohydrate or carbon to ferment essentially in the soil. Okay. Um, grafting, uh, bottom, the, the take home from grafting is that it's not for every rootstock and every um, scion, which is the top. Um, it's not, every combination is not going to work well mm -hmm. in your area. Yeah. So that's where the research in your area is going to decide the best combination to use. Um, and, but, uh, grafting. So the cool thing about grafting of watermelon, uh, in an organic system or any system is, is that when typical watermelons are ready to be harvested, that there's like maybe a three day window of optimum time. And whereas a grafted watermelon can sit in the field for 10 days. Oh. And, and, and so it has a longer, so if it's raining, downpouring, whatever, or if you just can't get people from another field into that field to harvest, you have a little bit more of a window, a little bit, uh, a little bit better timing to play with. Uh, typically watermelon, there's a, there's more yield per plant for, for watermelon versus meaning more yield per acre. Um, lycopene content is typically higher um, and drafted watermelon. Um, so basically you get a lot of benefits. Um, and one of the most important things is disease, soil-borne disease control. Yeah. Okay. Amazingly enough, there are some, there's a phenomenon occurring in some situations where when you graft a, uh, a watermelon, a, like say a, a seedless watermelon on top of a, a whatever rootstock it, it is, Something's happening at the graft junction where signals somehow are, trans are going from a squash or a wild watermelon or a bottle gourd traveling because they're the same family are traveling up into the cyan material up here and actually potentially turning on genes mm -hmm. in, in the cyan material that that basically code for uh, like secondary metabolites like uh, uh, melatonin. And things of that nature and um so there's there's really interesting things going on with grafting um broccoli uh varieties that are well suited to the heat um and actually would benefit from a summer cover cropping system that you could carry through uh the clover in those scenarios and the the, the, the broccoli could actually add as like a shade factor to help mitigate some of that summer stress of the of the clover so there's there's so much there's so many different ideas, different takes, and so much still to perfect, but at least somebody, the audience may have, you know, a, a, a thought now they say, hey, I can do that on my farm, but maybe it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. I'm using a, maybe a slightly different cover crop, but it'll work well in my area, say in Washington or Kansas or wherever you're watching.
Thanks to Brian Ward for today's discussion. The full transcript and video presentation are available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to Montag Manufacturing for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. And from all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening.